Hello and welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host in Russian and Eurasian Studies, Philip Pogac. This time around, I'll be speaking to Ivo Meinsen to talk about his book called Back to Our Future. Back to Our Future is one book in a series titled The Quest for an Ideal Youth in Putin's Russia. Ivo Meinsen decides to focus on an organization called NASHA. NASHA is a political organization made up primarily of Russian youth. This organization builds itself as an independent grassroots movement, though Ivo Meinsen carefully shows how this organization is closely tied to the Russian state. Built on the ideology of modernity and patriotism, NASHA is also an organization that commemorates World War II memory within Russian history. To talk about the political spirit in Russia among the youth, we are joined today by Ivo Meinsen. Welcome, Ivo. Thank you so much for having me. Before we delve into the book and into the NASHA organization, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how it is that you came to study Russian history and modern Russian history in particular? Yes, yeah, so uh, I'm actually Swiss and uh, growing up in Switzerland, of course, um, I sort of know, was a witness to the um, end of, of the Cold War to a certain extent. And what always fascinated me was, or, or I thought was really weird, was that we sort of have this notion, you know, living in Western Europe, you, you, have, you still have this idea of this uh, Iron Curtain is still really strong in, in, in people's minds. And I remember growing up with that idea and, and just really realizing at some point after I was done with high school that I knew practically nothing about history, you know, in Eastern Europe, in Russia. And I went to college in the U.S. And funnily enough, I uh, started taking Russian history classes at college in the United States. Uh, I had a really great professor, uh, Abbott Gleason, who was uh, a really great inspiration for that. And after that, I traveled to Russia for the first time. And, and it was kind of a scary thing because I didn't really know the language very well. I had started learning it a little bit, but I really wanted to go back. But I also realized that if I wanted to go back, I'd have to sort of uh, try a bit harder with the language and with the history. So once I started graduate school, I really decided to go fully into Russian history and uh, have been there uh, every year since then uh, in Russia in various places. And it's it's been really rewarding and, and really fascinating because I think it is a field that still today uh, people here know rather little about. So I feel like you can really make some kind of a contribution. And I, I like that idea. How did you come to write this particular book? Was there, was there ever a specific inspiration for dealing with youth politics? Um, I actually um, majored originally in sociology, and I was really interested in um, sort of youth organizations in general and the idea of, of generations and how knowledge is passed down and how ideologies and political ideas are passed down across generations. And for me, actually, the, the first impetus uh, to start studying Nashi was that I noticed how present uh, the memory of, of World War II or the Great Patriotic War still is in Russia today. And when I started hearing about this organization in 2005 that basically mobilizes all these young people uh, through war memory, I just thought that was really fascinating because I don't think you could do that either in the United States or in Western Europe and certainly you couldn't do it in Switzerland because for, for young people, I think here, you know, in, in my generation and even more so in like the generation that's in high school now, uh, that's ancient history and, and just nobody would care. And it re- really gave me, um, you know, it really made me interested in 
realize knowing more about why that is and why that's still such an issue. And um, I think anybody who has been there to Russia sees that it's this war memory is still very much on the surface of things quite in a literal way, but also in a figurative way. And, and for me, actually one really important moment was when I was in St. Petersburg and I went to this battlefield called uh, Nevsky Piotrchok, uh, which is right outside of St. Petersburg. And you walk through it and you still really see the trenches. You still see uh, the metal, you still find um, things there. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of scary and, and it's very, um, weird and very different from the way I think that World War II has been dealt with in, in Western Europe and the United States, where everything is kind of neatly cleaned up, whereas in Russia and in, in Eastern Europe, more generally, uh, these issues are still very political and perhaps even more political today than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Um, and that was very fascinating to me. You said that this is this organization is specifically tied with the with a shift from Yeltsin to Putin. So I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of background uh, about this, about what is different about Putin's regime, and then with that, go into talking about uh, Nasha, the national organization, and the structure. And um, you also say that they, they do not admit to being a state-funded Putin, pro-Putin organization, though it's very clear that those connections are there, uh, and they're, e- they're easy to find as well. Yeah, I think... Um... One of the main reasons, and I'm obviously not by any means the first one to say this, uh, for, for Putin's popularity is that he came in with this image of, of being a consolidator. Um, in, in Russia today, the 1990s, I think, are a great trauma for um, both the younger generation, which kind of might remember it from childhood, but also especially for older people um, who really... Um, for them, it was a time when when just everything fell apart, and and I think we'll might talk about this a little later. But also, if you see now things in in, in Crimea and in, in Ukraine right now, this this popularity of Putin um, has a lot to do with with this with this notion that he is um, reasserting a kind of a powerful state structure, reconstructing a powerful state structure which Russia was was missing in the 1990s, and. Um, this notion of of weakness and of being exposed to <clears throat> um, chaos to a certain extent, but also to Western manipulation, I think is really strong in Russia and really widely um, distributed. And so when when Putin came into power in, in 2000, or, or rather 1999, um, that was one reason why people saw in him like a capable um figure unlike Boris Yeltsin whom a lot of people sort of in his later years saw as this um kind of weak uh, often not at the top of his game figure um one thing sort of on on a, on a conceptual level I think that Putin did was that he was rather successful I argue in um combining a rather like patriotic to a certain extent also nationalist rhetoric with um, a kind of pragmatic um, stance in economic terms um, on the world stage. And uh, Richard Sakwa has, has coined this term of great power pragmatism, which I think describes at least uh, some parts of, of, of Putin's policies pretty well, of um, him trying to position Russia in the world 
but not as this sort of secondary power, but as an actual great power that is able to talk to, um, you know, other great powers and especially the United States on an, um, on one level. So I think that's a really important issue. And if we go into an organization like NASHI, um, NASHI, uh, its official uh, date when it was founded, supposedly, was on, on 15 April uh, 2005. And they really, I think there's two things we have to distinguish. On the one hand, they are clearly or were clearly a reaction to the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, which um, created a lot of fear in Russia's elite that something like this could happen in Russia as well. Because Also, especially because, uh, you know, you had the revolution in Georgia, in Serbia, um, and, and they were really scared of, of, of a birch revolution. And at this point, you had these figures um, like uh, Gleb Pavlovsky, a uh, political scientist, but also especially like Vladislav Surkov, who developed this notion of, of sovereign democracy, but also um, really emphasized the importance of being able to take the streets uh, in Russia, to be able to control the streets and to do that with the help of youth, because the driving force in, in Kiev, of course, had been sort of this young urban uh, group of people. And if you, when you see what happened in Russia in late 2004, 2005, um, with rising protests from various parts of the population over pension reforms, uh, you had occupation of um, administrative buildings uh, by members of the National um, Bolshevik Party, NBP, uh, you know, Edward Limonov's uh, youth organization. And there was really a notion that something had to be done about this. So NASHI was founded um, in April and they had their first big appearance in the streets uh, in, in on 15 May 2005 when 60,000 young people um, gathered in downtown Moscow to commemorate and to celebrate uh, the 60th anniversary of victory in the Great Patriotic War, uh, which again came one week after Putin had had his, his famous um, 2005 Victory Day speech. So it was this moment when... Um, when there was really this this very strong symbol of 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 victory day um was kind of appropriated in this transgenerational <laughs> uh fashion where these sixty thousand youngsters gathered uh there and and met veterans and there was this entire ritual where um veterans were symbolically like passing on the fate of the nation to the younger generation, which you know i mean of course on the one hand you can say it's propaganda and, and there's definitely, um, there were definitely really a clear, there's definitely a clear political agenda behind it. But at the same time, I think it is very powerful and it is a well-chosen symbol um, to politic, to appropriate in a political fashion because um, war memory is still very much um, revered in Russia. It's something uh, not only in Russia, Russia, but especially there, it's something that every family has a history with, you know, and, and, and everybody still uh, celebrates this. And so it is, it is the symbol that people could really get behind. 
and is also depoliticized to a certain extent. Um, and this is especially important in a context where a lot of other traditional symbols connected to communism don't really matter anymore um, today. And just to answer your question about um, sort of this notion of grassroots versus directed, I mean, there are a lot of, um, first of all, personal continuities. You see, as I said, Vladislav Sukhov, uh, you can, if you read, uh, which is one thing I do in this chapter, um, if you read Vladislav Surkov's writing on sovereign democracy and you read Nashi's manifesto of 2005 alongside, some of the passages are, are literally the same. So, I mean, he clearly played an important role in, in co-writing this. Uh, if he wasn't the author himself, this is all rather unclear exactly, you know, how this went. Um, but it is clearly... Um, something that was state that was initiated from the top and and you have this figure of also Vasily Yakimenko who was the founder of Nashi who had also founded um going together uh, a few years earlier which was sort of the predecessor to Nashi and it, there are also interviews with him where he talks about how he conducted these focus groups and he received money from the presidential administration and he went around to various universities recruiting young people. And I also found this in my interview with Nashi members who, who told me the same thing. So there was definitely considerable state support. There was also considerable support that such a demonstration could even happen. You know, they blocked off all the streets, for example. But again, at the same time, I think it's important that this is a really well-chosen symbol that actually attracted people. Like you, you can have propaganda, but, but if it doesn't enjoy a certain amount of acceptance and popularity, um, it's not really going to do anything. And I think in that way, um, Nashi was rather successful. You talk about the role of the enemy uh, in, in terms of finding support for Nasha, and that uh, Nasha organizers often try to mobilize an idea of a foreign enemy or a domestic enemy in order to promote and to drive uh, Nasha uh, att attendance to the demonstration and in general uh, support and filling the ranks of this organization. Would you talk about more about the structure of of how exactly Nasha uh, works. Uh, what are the sources of propaganda or what are the sources of inf information from the leaders of the organization to, uh, to the members? Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of, of the sources, um, you, for, for um, you, first of all, you had the manifesto, which is, is, is still, I think the most important document, um, on the other hand, a lot of the information passed through uh, the website. So they had a very active website until uh, last year, basically. But we might talk about that a little later. And um, on a, on a, on a different level, you had meetings like this, like this big rally in two thousand and five. Um, but at the same time, um, there were lots of lectures. So they had various lectures, and these kind of went, I think you can say broadly under two subheadings. So one was um, really this kind of promise of upward social mobility. That's, that is one very important aspect of Nashi because um, one thing that they, um, their rhetoric was very much revolutionary at first. So they said, we are, you know, uh, in favor of a revolution 
And they also criticize things like corruption. They criticize ineffective um, state bureaucrats uh, who only think of their offshore accounts. And there were actually instances, especially in the beginning, when Nashi um, subdivisions went after uh, corrupt bureaucrats in some cities, which also caused some um, uh, some unhappiness among among the Russian elite, uh, with uh, uh, Sergei Mironov uh, famously calling them a pack of wolves uh, that couldn't be controlled. Um, so you you had, but you had this this very much this this um, very popular promise of upward social mobility, this notion that talented young people, also if they were from the provinces, should be able to move up into this new kind of elite, um, which isn't about um, connections, but it's about talent, it's about merit. Um, So in that sense, it was also um, more successful in the provinces than organizations like Maladaya Gvardia, for example, which is uh, United Russia's uh, youth organization, which is much more elitist than than Nashi was, um, because it promised these these kinds of um, this kind of ability and also uh, organized lots of um, opportunities to attend lectures in management, to attend um, uh, you know like leadership courses at, at universities in Moscow. So that that I think is, is is one aspect. The other aspect is very much aimed at um, maintaining control of the streets, as I already said. So from an early point on, you had um, lots of lectures and, and classes on on crowd control, um, like this notion of how to direct the attention of a crowd, how to um, fight against um, possible opponents. And that is one of my main arguments in the book, is that that was one of the big problems that Nashi had, because it it's 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 vice and it's virtue, if you will, um, because on the one hand, this attracted a broad segment of of youth because you could sort of um, attract these these smart, um, you know, ambitious young people. But on the other hand, you could also attract these kind of angry, uh, disadvantaged youth. I mean, this is a bit um, this is a little bit. Um, a bit simplified, of course, but but at the same time, I think that you can you always have to simplify a little bit. Um, but there was also always a potential for violence um, in this organization. And again, it's it's really difficult to prove any of these uh, cases because there were various incidents. There was an incident where uh, Gary Kasparov, um, the opposition leader, was hit over the head with a chessboard, and people said it was. Um, Naashi who did it. There was the famous incident of the journalist Oleg Kashin, um, who has been or who was an observer of, of Nashi since 2005, who was beaten very badly and uh, was in a coma for uh, for an extended period of time. And so if 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 nothing else, um, this kind of connection of Nashi and its leaders with violent elements um, has contributed to undermining its reputation. And Vasily Yakimenko, the leader, uh, made this even worse because he um, made statements in 2005, for example, that if, if there was a, a Maidan in Moscow, he would get his friends uh, in like the fan groups of, of, of Spartak Moscow and drive them into the Dnieper. Um, so there were these kinds of statements that I think sat well with um, a kind of more aggressive probably predominantly male young crowd 
Um, but at the same time, it created a lot of internal uh, controversy and contradictions. And um, just to answer your question about, about who these enemies were, um, you, you did have these, um, of course, foreign enemies. And first and foremost, it is uh, the United States where we are also coming full circle to the whole war commemoration issue because you find in, in various places in, in Nazi uh, propaganda, you found this connection between Nazi Germany, which was striving for world dominance, and the Americans who are trying to create this um, um, uh, one, like, uh, who are trying to, to dominate the world today. Um, a second enemy abroad was, was terrorism, which, again, um, was, I guess, a more widely shared, uh, more internationally compatible enemy, if you sort of think of the war on terror that President Bush declared. So in, in that sense, uh, also Putin, who inscribed himself in this fight against terror, that was something that Nashi um, took up as well. And then you have the domestic enemies, and, and there it gets a bit confusing because um, you had the uh, the opposition movement, which consisted of various people, and and uh, you you had this notion that Nashi and and Putin's Russia were confronted with um, unusual fascists. That's what they called. There's actually this brochure in 2005 that Nashi printed um, about unusual fascists, and unusual fascists are are not fascists in the sense that you know they are are neo Nazis. But it's become such a broad term in, in, in Nashi usage that it can basically be applied to anybody. And in general, the, the term fascist in, in Russian political discourse is a very broad term. And as we see again in, in Ukraine now, um, you know, everybody is called a fascist who is, who is opposed to, to Russian interests. Um, but again, the, the, the disadvantage, of course, of, of, a, of a concept like that is that it is really vague and um, it kind of leads to um, not very um, not very reasonable reactions at all times. And, and again, that was one of the problems that kind of kept re- resurfacing during during the time when Nashi had it was at its peak. Very interesting. Uh example that you bring up in the book about the the Estonian bronze uh, bronze statue um, it's it's a commemoration from World War two uh, would you be able to tie this event of, of this protest against taking down this World War two memorial with the the World War two um, the role the World War two memory plays in in nasha mindset and nasha uh, the, the fiber of, of, of what is nasha mm-hmm. um, yeah so these so-called bronze nights in in um in april of of 2007 were happened at a time when when nashi was really at the height of its power um it, it we are not entirely sure how many members it had they claimed they had about 300,000 uh, supporters at the time and 20,000 so-called commissars. So you see like this kind of Soviet symbolism also plays a role there. So these commissars were really the activists in the movement and the supporters is, is kind of anybody from who, who is, has participated in, in any of Nashi's activities. So we don't know if that's true. It might have been, as other people say, it was 120,000, but it was a large organization at that time in 2007. 
And um, what happened in, in Estonia was that uh, this um, this bronze soldier, which was a Soviet uh, soldier, uh, which had been standing in, in downtown Tallinn uh, since uh, 1948, uh, sorry, 1946. And it was a complex symbol in the sense that um, in Estonia, uh, it, the World War II memory is, is not unproblematic either, right? Because you have the issue of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. You have um, the fact that both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union occupied and reoccupied Estonia at various times. So um, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you did have this reemergence of alternative um, discourses on history, which not all of which saw the Soviet Union as the liberator that the Russians like to see the so the Red Army, um, sort of, or not all Russians, of course, but a lot uh, sort of in, in, pol in political discourse, in official political discourse. That's that's how it's presented. Um, so this had this conflict had really been heating up and, and become politicized also within Estonia, especially because Estonia has a sizable Russian speaking minority, um, which has been uh, very much disadvantaged since the end of the Soviet Union. So there's a real, a real clear um, social tension in that country as well. So when um, Andrus Ansip uh, was the, he he um, ran for uh, uh, ran in the elections of of, of two thousand and six, and he promised to remove this bronze soldier in in downtown Tallinn, which for many Estonians symbolizes uh, Soviet occupation. So when um, they announced construction uh, activities at this bronze soldier in, in April and, and the night of the 26th of April, um, all kinds of rumors started circulating. And, and, and even though the government had not declared that it would actually remove the soldier, um, a lot of ethnic Russians started believing this and these demonstrations hap started happening that night and they became very violent with uh, various um, offices of, of Anzip's party were destroyed, for example. And in the clashes, uh, 40 people were injured and, and one ethnic Russian was actually killed, uh, Dmitry Ganin. And interesting is the interesting thing is that Nashi was actually not very involved in this issue. If, if you look at their website, for example, there's not a lot of entries about this issue before um, at the end of, of April. But they really picked up on... I think, yeah, they, they realized like what what an, what an issue this was, and and there was also a lot of emotion within uh, among the members of the organization who were very much upset, also because uh, Andrus Ansip had called um, the the soldiers who were buried there had called them drunks that had been run over by their own tanks. So it's it's a really ugly story in general, and Nashe began uh, picketing the Estonian embassy in Moscow and uh, demanded an apology. Later, issued an ultimatum and. On, on May 2nd, this really escalated uh, into violence where they damaged the car of a Swedish diplomat and tried to attack the Estonian ambassador. And throughout this whole time, um, you see, again, this, this notion of, of, of Russian weakness. Like in a lot of their speeches, in a lot of the uh, meetings, people were talking about how, you know, the government had to do something now against the Estonians, how... They had to, um, you know, take sanctions against Estonian goods, how um, Russia was always going to be weak 
if it couldn't do anything against this kind of um, insult to the memory of World War II. And it's really fascinating because you see one of the, the problems of this, of this World War II commemoration is that it is essentially um, a Soviet kind of memory. But of course, Russia today is no longer the Soviet Union. So a country like Estonia, which is today part of the European Union, is for a lot of Russians and, and, and within this, this kind of discourse is still part of the Soviet Union. And so in that sense, which is one thing I argue, is that this, this issue, which is actually a domestic Estonian issue, became this domestic uh, Russian issue. And um, this this notion of of having to do something against this act of of, of barbarism, uh, which they which many people saw uh, the removal of the statue, uh, became this extremely emotional and important issue um, for for Nashi in particular. Um, at the same time, what it actually ended up leading to was that the European Union, which had tried to stay out of this whole issue beforehand. Um, because of the attack on the diplomats, uh, had to become involved. So uh, a lot of suddenly all these Western governments started calling on the Russian government to protect the Vienna Convention, which protects diplomats. And there was a, a phone call from Angela Merkel to, to Putin. Um, and shortly after, the picket, uh, Nashi's picket actually ended. So the police in Moscow had tolerated it for almost a week, um, but very quickly when this became an embarrassment, I think, to, to the Russian government, they actually took steps to end it. And it was really um, a considerable, um, I mean, I wouldn't say an international diplomatic crisis, uh, you shouldn't uh, exaggerate, but it was was an issue, especially because the EU-Russia summit was only two weeks after the picket, and um, it really, uh, the the event and the violence in Moscow um, really overshadowed. So it had real diplomatic costs for, for the Russian government. And at the same time, very quickly afterwards, or rather about half a year afterwards, um, Nashi was actually downsized considerably. So this also had to do with Medvedev's um, um, arrival in power, who is not, was not a great supporter of Nashi by any means. And he, the, the government uh, closed 45 out of 50 of Nashi's offices and cut a lot of the um, financial support that given it. So, for example, Nashi commissars um, had received free cell phones that they could use, so they no longer had access to that. So it really had serious uh, fall. Uh, was it had a serious fallout for for both Nashi and, and the government, and uh, really damaged Nashi's reputation. I think that this last point you bring up that it, that with coming of Medvedev, the Nasha support uh, dwindled and maybe even the ranks grew smaller. I'm wondering um, what is the situation with Nasha today specifically with Putin being back in power and with uh, a lot of unrest internationally, but within a within an ex-Soviet sphere, specifically speaking about Ukraine, and whether or not you see um, a potential for a resurgence in, in the Nasha movement or maybe a, a copycat organization um, also with closer ties to, to the government uh, and just in general how you see uh, an organization like Nasha playing a role in, in domestic affairs in Russia today um, so yeah with I think with, with Medvedev's arrival in power um, 
certainly Nashi was downsized, um, but it wasn't it wasn't the end of the organization. Um, that the end of Nashi was declared time and again for about five years. Um, and but what a lot of um, analysts and what I also found in my research was that it really kind of shifted the emphasis of its activity. So these kinds of rather extreme measures, also measures with with a potential for violence, were really radically downsized. Um, and instead, it became more active in um, promoting economic um, innovation. So it, it was in very many ways, it, it kind of inscribed itself into Medvedev's agenda at least you know in in, in his, his early years which which was a lot about modernization and innovation um and tried to kind of reposition itself um i think that was partially successful but at the same time um in since uh, june 2013 nashi has really um lost its its position and uh, i as far as i know uh, it's really ceased to exist as such um this was to certain extent also a result of its success because, for example, uh, Vasily Yakimenko, its founder, um, actually moved on to become the head um, of of the Agency for Youth Affairs, which which was a newly um, founded um, government agency that took over a lot of the activities that organizations like Nashi had done before and, and actually also uh, institutionalized them. Um, and at this time, you also had a switch um, with um, Vladislav Surkov, um, who was sort of demoted first and fired. Now he's back, but it's kind of unclear what his position is exactly right now. I mean, he, he still plays apparently an important role in Ukrainian-Russian relations and is also on the on the sanctions list currently. Um, but with with sort of his demise and and the rise of of um, Vyacheslav Valodin as as you know kind of the main um, um, main advisor to to Putin in in the new um, in the new organization, uh, you also had other organizations becoming more important and especially Maladaya Gvardia, Young Guard, uh, United Russia's youth organization is still alive and well and and still present in all regions. Um, you also have STAL, which means STEEL, which, which was set up in, in, in 2009, 2010, which has taken over some of Nash's activities and has also been very controversial. They, they put up um, cardboard heads of, of people like Condoleezza Rice or Saakashvili at, at one of the summer camps. And so some people say they took over kind of the, the rougher part, but they haven't really been as, as um, active as, as Nashi was before. And just recently, um, there was a, the foundation of a new organization called SIT, so um, WEB, which was founded by a former uh, Nashi commissar, Artur Omarov. And it's really interesting because they also have a very similar platform. So they, they, prom- they um, promote themselves as young, as, as like a young intelligentsia for Putin. They were um, also got a lot of TV coverage when they were founded. They drew patriotic graffitis, distribute St. George ribbons, um, and have also wrote an, a manifesto, which is all about sharing power with the fathers and becoming this kind of new, um, this kind of new elite. But I think what is different is that they are a lot more traditional in outlook because I think 
with whatever you want to say about Nashe, but like the notion of, of, of Russia being a modern country that has to find its place in the world with all the problems it has was really an important issue. And I think it was also aimed at kind of an urban mobile group, whereas SIT um, is, is really strongly against gay marriage. They are for traditional religions. They are for Putin. They want to buy Russian products, you know. So it's this, I think, much more traditional kind of like a traditional of, of, a, of, of a patriotic conservative youth organization than, than Nashi was. So it, it's, it's a bit it's kind of a bit more boring, I think, you know, because I mean, also with Surkov, whatever you want to think about him, but he was kind of obviously a manipulative character, but also interesting with his, you know, writing activities. And, and, um, and, and so apparently SIT is, is supposed to become uh, an important new organization, but at the same time, they're also much more focused on, on the arts. So like they want to promote, um, you know, patriotic art and paid and, and they do fashion shows in, in Crimea, for example. So, and I think this is also an understanding and a learning process that um, it's not in the interest of, of, of anybody in Russia to have an organization that is primarily known for its violent tendencies. And uh, your question about, um, about Ukraine it's hard to say. I haven't heard or read much about explicit activities of Russian youth organizations. And as I said, there there were these fashion shows that that um, sit organized in Crimea, and and there seems to be some activity there. And um, another thing that I read about was that in in this um, summer camp that Nashi has organized for the past 10 years and and is now actually organized by the Agency for Youth Affairs at at Lake Seliger, um, there was some, some, um, Shirinovsky appeared there and and called on young people to go to the Donbass and, and, you know, take up arms. But I, I don't think it's as systematic um as it was in 2005 and i think it has a lot to do with the fact that it is a very different situation because i mean now with this kind of you know whatever is going on in eastern ukraine right now and it's hard to say how to what extent russia is exactly involved but it's not a situation um where 10,000 or a thousand young people dressed in patriotic jerseys are really going to make a difference. I think it's in terms of the, the techniques of, of um, trying to keep Ukraine under, under Russian control, or at least destabilizing it. It's, it's, it's a very different playing field. And in, in a way it's also become much scarier and much more serious because I mean, what Nashi did in 2005 compared to what's going on right now, um, I mean, they they may have used warlike rhetoric in order to mobilize youth, but it, it wasn't a war uh, like we're seeing right now. So it'll be a two part question. The first question: uh, How you feel about the uh, the the impact of of youth in Russia and whether or not they're generally uh, mobilizing um, in the country in support or against Putin? Because there's been a lot of opposition. There's been a lot of support. And the second question is. Um, is what you're working on next, your next project, and and how you see that relating uh, to your current one, or if it's something completely different. Uh-huh. Um, in terms of of how youth is mobilizing for or against Russia, I mean, it's I find it, it it's hard to say because my impression 
I mean, there are a lot of different activities obviously going on. There's a lot of different organizations in Russia. And um, I believe that youth organizations probably should actually get more state support in Russia. I don't think that's, that's some, I, I just, that's important to me to say, because I don't think that's beyond uh, that. That's very controversial because if you look at how NGOs in Russia work, you know, how little money they have. Um, and, and it's still a lot of enthusiastic people who, who work. Um, they should get more state support. And if you look at these programs that were passed by the Russian government in the last 15 years for like the patriotic education um, you have now for the program from 2011 to 2015 contains $25 million. So, I mean, that's nothing if you compare that to, to other countries. And from what I hear uh, from from colleagues, uh, they do get some of that money. So like a lot of historical research that's being done in Russia, also by organizations like Memorial, for example, that is at times being funded through this money and, and especially them going to schools and stuff like that. So that is not uh, a bad thing per se. Um, in, in terms of whether I, my impression is that it has sort of being active in NGOs still has a bad name in Russia. And, 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 and if you look at Nashi considered itself and was sold as a non-governmental organization as well. But at the same time, if you look at the idea of like what these, so what these um, organizations are supposed to do, they're considered to be partners of the state rather than independent actors. So in that sense, my impression is that youth are sort of have especially after Balotnaya after this kind of movement ended again there's a lot of inactivity again even though there's obviously a lot going on on, on social networks and, and people are, are doing a lot but in terms of sort of I don't see a mass movement a mass youth movement like Nasha was or also like the National Bolshevik um, Party was at the time uh, emerging or, or in existence uh, right now and um in terms of how they see Putin, I mean, I, I, I think there's definitely a lot of support for him, even though some of that might be exaggerated. And I'm not sure if it's 80 or, or 90 percent, you know, but um, I do think that that Putin is popular because a lot of people who are in their 20s or early 30s, they they see these past 14 years as, as a relatively stable and, and, and good time. Um, even if not everything is, is great, but we'll see how that develops with kind of this increasing isolation that Putin seems to be willing to uh, to take into account for for the kind of like um, power projection of, of of Russia abroad. We'll see. Um, I'm working right now on a book, um, which is actually my, my dissertation on, uh, hero cities, uh, in the Soviet union. So, and it actually ties kind of neatly into this project because one thing that I found very striking when I, when I read a lot of these, um, a lot of these documents on, on war memory is to what extent they really recycle um, notions from the Brezhnev era, from the 60s and 70s, which is really the time when war memory was sort of consolidated and um, also canonized to to a certain extent. And you find, if you read some of 
Putin's speeches, you can basically replace Soviet Union with Russia, and they some of them are verbatim the same. And and I found that really fascinating. So I decided to go back to to the source, so to speak. And I'm actually uh, working on a book right now on um, the importance of of um, commemorative culture in hero cities in the 60s and 70s. And I've been, for the last couple of years, I've been conducting research in, in Moscow and in uh, Tula and Novorossiysk. So I've been trying to really get a the perspective of these um, rather provincial cities uh, take that into account because I think that's important rather than only staying in Moscow and judging the rest of the country from the capital. Ivo, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about your book. Thank you so much. It was a great opportunity. Thank you. That was Ivo Meinsen talking about youth politics in Russia. So please join us again next time on New Books Network and Russian and Eurasian Studies. Again, I'm your host, Philip Felgach, and thank you for tuning in.